Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to be looking just at one verse, verse 34. Uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a Bible, a paperback Bible, underneath one of the seats in front of you. And that one verse in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, is found on page 170 of those paperback Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that paperback Bible home with you. Consider it a gift from us. We would love for you to have that. But again, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, this morning. So if you have found that verse, I invite you to stand, if you are able, very briefly, for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, that's the days of King Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Some guy told me one time that he lived so far out in the boonies that he had to drive toward town just to hunt. I hope no one's ever told you that you are so inept that you could throw a rock at the ground and miss. It's not a compliment. It's probably not a compliment either to be told that you're so old that they had to invent fire to light the candles on your first birthday cake. Now these are just amusing ways to illustrate and epitomize how remote, how uncoordinated, or how old someone might be. But the point is that the author of 1 Kings is doing something very similar to that in chapter 16, verse 34, but without the humorous intent. This verse is not given to us just to give us some information about a building project that took place in the days of Ahab. This verse is here to tell us how bad things were when Elijah the prophet arrives on the scene. Last week we began a series called The Triumph of God in the Ministry of Elijah the Prophet. But before we're looking at his ministry, we want to get a sense of what's happening in Israel when Elijah appears in their history. We want to know what's going on in Israel. And we saw last week that Elijah the Prophet steps in to a declining, divided, depraved kingdom under the rule and reign of King Ahab, who did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. King Ahab married Jezebel, who worshipped Baal, and he himself built an altar to Baal and placed it in the house of Baal that he had built in Samaria, the capital city of Israel itself, officially and formally sanctioning idol worship in the land. And then we get to verse 34 about the rebuilding of Jericho. And the rebuilding of Jericho epitomizes how bad things were under Ahab. They were so bad that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. But why exactly is that so bad? Well, to try to answer that question, I want us to look at three things. We want to look at the rationale for rebuilding Jericho. And then we want to see the restriction against rebuilding Jericho. And then finally, the result of rebuilding Jericho. But we want to start with the rationale for rebuilding Jericho. Now, most of us have heard of the city of Jericho. We learn about it in our Bible stories, and perhaps we even sang about it as children 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. The city of Jericho was actually the first city that was taken in the land of Canaan when the Israelites went in to take possession of the promised land. You might remember that they were instructed to walk around that city for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they blew trumpets and the Lord himself brought the walls of that city down. So more technically, it wasn't Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was the Lord himself who fought the battle of Jericho on behalf of his people. Now when our text speaks of Isle of Bethel building Jericho, we shouldn't just assume that Jericho had remained unpopulated since the days of the conquest. Rather, its walls, its gates, its foundations had never been repaired. And so Jericho wasn't necessarily an uninhabited city. It was an unfortified city. It was an open city. But an unfortified city without walls and without gates and without foundations was an insecure city. And this was seen as a problem that needed to be remedied in Ahab's day. We also shouldn't assume that Hiel of Bethel undertakes this construction project on his own initiative as if it's some kind of personal whim. To fortify a city in the king's domain strongly suggests the support and endorsement of King Ahab himself. So even though we don't read Ahab's name explicitly mentioned in verse 34, the fact that this happens in his days implies the spirit of Ahab, at least, is behind the construction. But why undertake the task of fortifying the city to begin with? What might be the rationale? Well, the motives and rationale for rebuilding Jericho were likely political power, and national security. We actually know a good deal about Ahab's father, Omri, from extra-biblical sources. We don't actually get hardly anything about Omri, Ahab's father, from the Bible, but from extra-biblical sources, we get quite, of information, quite a bit of information about him because he was a very powerful, influential king in Israel who did much to stabilize and strengthen Israel on the scene of international politics by forging a lot of uh, international treaties and alliances. I also read actually that Omri, Ahab's father, strengthened Israel's capital by moving it from Tirzah to the fortress city of Samaria. We actually read that just before our text in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. And so Omri, Ahab's father, was about strengthening and protecting Israel. And like father, like son, it appears that Ahab continues in these kinds of policies. For example, his marriage to Jezebel certainly carried with it some kind of political advantage because forming an alliance with the Sidonians would have given them access to important Phoenician ports on the sea that were important for trading and would increase the wealth and prosperity of Israel. And the building of Jericho would simply have been the next logical step in this process of strengthening and securing Jericho on the scene of international politics would have been the logical next step. Because Israel not only needed a strong capital city, also, uh, Israel also would need strong borders to be secure. And Jericho was strategically located. It's a border town. It served as the gateway into the land from the east. There's a reason why it was the first city taken when the Israelites entered into the land to conquer it. It's strategically located. If you can take Jericho, you can fan out to the north and you can fan out to the south and invade the country. But with an un with a unfortified and unwalled, ungated Jericho, what would stop the surrounding enemies of Israel now from entering in and invading the land? 
In other words, an unfortified, unwalled, ungated Jericho left Israel vulnerable. And so that should raise a question for us. If that's the case, why had Jericho not been rebuilt before? Why did the kings before Ahab never seek to build Jericho's gates and walls again? Why untouched decade after decade? King David, King Solomon did much to strengthen Israel, but they didn't rebuild Jericho. And even Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the quintessential sinner that we were introduced last week in First and Second Kings, he doesn't touch the walls or the gates of Jericho. Why? Because there had been a warning against its reconstruction. And so that brings us secondly to the restriction against rebuilding Jericho. The reason Jericho had not been built up since the time of Joshua is because Joshua pronounced a curse upon it at the time of the conquest. And we read very clearly in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, that Joshua laid an oath on them, the Israelites, at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. So no question about what city we're talking about here. We're talking about Jericho, the first city conquered. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. And so this explains why no previous administration in Israel had sought to secure the border by building Jericho. I mean, indeed, who would so clearly defy God's word and invite this curse at the cost of one's very own children? Who would do that? The Israelites of Ahab's day. That's who. Such is the wickedness of the people when Elijah the prophet arrives on the scene. The building of Jericho shows us that God's word, the covenant word by which the people were to live by, was either so completely unknown out of neglect they didn't know the curse, or so completely disregarded at the time of Ahab it carried absolutely no influence and carried no weight in the decisions and the actions of what happened in the land. This is how the building of Jericho epitomizes how bad things were at the time of Elijah the prophet. The word was so ignored, unknown, or disregarded that Jericho was built by Hiel of Bethel. But there's more to consider than simply the dishonoring of God's word that's made evident in the building of Jericho. Consider why was the curse pronounced upon building Jericho to begin with? Why would this city never be fortified again? Why were the walls of this very key city to remain in ruins? Well, as we said, remember that Jericho was the first city taken when the people entered into the promised land. And the walls of that fortified city of Jericho fell not by Israel's military weaponry, not by Israel's strength, not by Israel's planning or by their wisdom. The walls of Jericho were brought down by the Lord himself as an act of grace. You see, in this, he's attempting to teach the people of Joshua's time that he's giving them this land as a gift according to his promise. And it would be by his grace, it would be by his strength, it would be by his favor that the people possess and inherit this land as theirs. In other words, the people would conquer not just the city of Jericho, but the entire land by grace through faith. The people would obtain their inheritance by grace through faith. 
The walls being brought down by God himself is an act of grace. And that this is connected to faith is actually something that we don't have to conjecture about. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter on faith where we read in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And so Jericho's fallen walls were a constant reminder that not just Jericho, but the whole land, indeed all of the covenant promises that God made to his people are gifts of grace to be received by faith in him and in his word. Jericho represented something that was true about the entire land. They would inherit by grace. In other words, Jericho's fallen walls preached a message. They formed an inscription at the gateway to the land that was promised to them as their inheritance. And so even if the covenant people grew silent about this truth, the fallen walls of Jericho would continue to sing of God's grace. The covenant blessings are received and obtained as gifts of God's grace, his strength, and his favor, not by Israel's might. And this message of grace, of God's grace for his people, was to be permanently etched into Israel's very geography by what we could call a kind of divine urban planning. Don't touch Jericho. Don't rebuild its walls. Don't reestablish its gates. Don't build its foundations. It served as an inscription of grace, of God's grace, until the days of Ahab and Hiel when they attempted to erase that inscription of grace. Why would they do that? Well, consider that to an unbelieving people, an unfortified and vulnerable Jericho would appear as ridiculously foolish. How can you leave such a key border city unfortified, just sitting there, making us vulnerable? That's how it would appear to an unbelieving people, but to a believing heart, Jericho's ruins would speak a message of comfort and encouragement because it would point them to the power of God's grace for them that they entered the land, the first place they entered as the land, those walls were brought down by God's grace and they inherited the whole land by God's grace. And it was to teach them that they could never be more secure than they were behind Jericho's fallen walls because if they were dwelling behind Jericho's fallen walls, it would mean that they were not relying on their own strength for security, but they were walking in obedience to God's clear commands in his word and they were trusting in the power of his protection for them and the sufficiency of his grace to sustain them in their inheritance. And so the fallen walls and gates of Jericho may appear as weakness until you hear the testimony of grace that they point to. And so Israel needed to decide where would they place their ultimate trust? Where would Israel place its ultimate trust for security and life and blessing? Would they trust human strength, military and political tactics, earthly wisdom, or would they trust God and his grace and his power for them and his covenant protection? Where would be their ultimate trust? That's not just a question that Israel faces. It's a question that you and I face today. All of us face that question all the time. So what about us? What about you today? Where is your ultimate trust placed? Where is your future hope ultimately? Where are you looking for answers in life in the midst of trial 
and difficulty? Where ultimately is your hope? What do you think it is that's going to save you from the corruption that's within you? And what's going to save you from the corruption you see in the society around you? Where's your ultimate trust and hope? Human government? Economic systems? Education? Technology? Progress in technology? What is it that you believe will deliver you from your greatest threats? From pain, from the effects of the curse, from sickness, from disease, and from death itself? What is your ultimate hope of deliverance? Are you going to follow the science as your ultimate hope and trust? Notice how that's discipleship language, by the way. Follow the science. Will you follow the science as your ultimate hope of deliverance from the effects of the curse? Or will you take up your cross and follow Jesus as your only hope of salvation? Now, of course, these other things have their place, right? Human government has its place. Education has its place. Science has its place. But do they outrank the word of God and God's grace as your hope, ultimate hope and trust for life and blessing? Ultimate trust and hope. That's what the issue is. And so maybe we could ask it in this way. Are you, are you going to live in the spirit of William Ernest Henley's Invictus who says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or are you going to live in the spirit of Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress who says, it is my duty, said he, said Christian, to distrust mine own ability that I may have reliance on him that is stronger than all. Which one will you live by? And if you're honest with yourself and you listen to the world around you and maybe even sometimes in the church, what is the message that you're hearing? What are you being told to adopt? Right? If we're discerning enough, again, we're going to see that our age is not all that different from Elijah's age. And Elijah's age opts for the first one. Ahab and Hiel and the people of Israel opt for the first one. What about you? What are you going to choose? What am I going to choose? Israel opts for the first one, and what's the result of that? So the third thing is the result of rebuilding Jericho. Well, the result is Jericho seems to be rebuilt by Hiel. He gets it done, but at great cost. At great cost. Because we read that he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. In exact accordance, exact accordance with the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now some suggest here that Hiel is simply following ancient pagan custom, and he sacrifices his two sons in order to secure the favor, the peace, and the blessing upon the city from the gods. Maybe. We don't know how Hiel's sons died, so we can't say that for sure. It's possible, but we can't say for sure. What we can say for sure is this. You cannot live in defiance of God's word without consequence. You cannot live in defiance of God's word without eventual, tragic consequence. And we can say this for sure as well. God's word will be confirmed as true. The truth of God's word will be confirmed one way or another. The inscription of grace at the entrance to the land of Canaan in Jericho has been deleted by Hiel and the building project under Ahab. That is true. But now there's another thing testifying 
to the truth and validity of God's word. You may have to go outside the city now, but you'll find two graves of Hiel's two sons that declare the certainty of God's word. And those two graves actually declare another message. But it's no longer a message of grace that Jericho's fallen walls proclaimed. The two graves of Hiel's sons now proclaim a message of judgment. It could simply be summarized as this. Cursed is anyone who refuses to live by grace through faith in the word of God. That's what those graves testify to. Cursed is anyone who refuses to live by grace through faith in the word of God and ultimately in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So let's not make any mistake about this. Building Jericho in the days of Ahab was about erasing an inscription of grace. And so it was an Old Testament equivalent to denying the grace of the gospel. That's what's going on here. It's a denial, a refusal to live by grace. You could even say it this way. Losing sight of Jericho's ruins and their witness to God's grace was an Old Testament equivalent of losing sight of the cross and empty tomb and their witness to God's grace. And you think, really? Well, consider this. The rebuilding of Jericho basically says, I will claim my inheritance, I will conquer my enemies, and I will secure my life, not by what God provides for me by his grace, but what I will accomplish by my own hand. That's what it declares. That's works salvation, friends. There's only one of two results that you get eventually with the mindset of works salvation. It will either lead to pharisaical pride, self-righteousness, and contempt for others if you think you're doing well, or it will lead to doubt, discouragement, and despairing guilt and contempt for yourself if you feel you're not doing very well. Those are the results of works righteousness. That's what you end up with. And isn't it interesting that the same things result when we lose sight of the cross and the empty tomb. That's what results when we lose sight of grace. If we lose sight of grace, we either become proud and self-righteous, pharisaical and contempt for others, or we become discouraged and despairing with contempt for ourselves. So to lose sight of Jericho's ruins was a precursor to losing sight of Jesus and the gospel and the grace of the gospel. A gospel that says it is in him in Jesus and what he accomplishes for me that my inheritance is obtained. It's in him that my life is secured eternally. It's in him that I enter into the benefits of covenant blessing and it's in him that my ultimate enemies are defeated and destroyed. And so we can say this, blessed is anyone who lives by grace through faith in the word of God and ultimately in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So isn't it sad and tragic that we live at a time where churches, Christian pulpits, Christian classrooms, Christian missionaries are abandoning the word of God and the centrality of the word of God that gives life. Again, we're not that far from the spirit of Ahab's age, the time when Elijah enters into the scene. Because blessed are those and only those who live by grace through faith in the word of God and in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So you can reject God's word and find judgment and curse. That's what we see here. Or you can live by grace through faith in God's word, accept that word in Jesus Christ, and find life and blessing. 
but that life and blessing that's held out to us in Christ Jesus is greater than the life and blessing that was held out to Israel in the Old Testament. And we stand to inherit a greater city than one that we could rebuild ourselves like Jericho. We stand to inherit a city whose builder and architect is God himself. The New Testament reveals that city to us as the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven from God. It's not something that we establish. It's not something that we build. It's a gift of grace that's granted to those who live by grace through faith. We read of this city in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 4, where John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is that your ultimate trust and hope. We read later in Revelation chapter 21 something else about that city. In verse 25 it tells us that the gates of that city, the new Jerusalem will have gates, but the gates of that city will never be shut by day. And there is no night there. So the gates will always be open. It speaks of eternal security, open on all sides because all the threats have been removed. Our ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the devil will have been defeated and destroyed once and for all by Jesus, the King and the Savior. And all of those who look to him by faith will dwell eternally in that city under the banner of that city with this inscription, received as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And those who believe in Jesus, if that's you, then you will dwell in that city, worshiping God forever and ever with thankful hearts for the grace that he's given. Even as we worship him now for the grace that he's given to us through Jesus Christ who secures that eternal city for us, who secures our eternal inheritance. Not through what we have done or can do, but by what he has accomplished for us in his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every verse of it that instructs us. And we thank you for the reality of your grace. Lord, you know how prone we are to rely upon ourselves. And so we pray that you would keep us from that. Let us not lose sight of the cross and the empty tomb and your grace for us. Let us live by grace through faith in your word and let us rejoice in what you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, our King. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.